Hello, my name is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to this episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to yet another extraordinary organization serving their community by conserving and preserving our heritage. It could be an organization in your community, in your county, or in your state. Now sit back and relax and enjoy the program. Merry Christmas, everyone. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks. On this program, we meet with professionals from genealogical and historical societies across the United States. This episode airs on December 20th, 2021, and so it becomes our Christmas episode. We believe people want to have a better understanding of these precious organizations. They want to learn how they're funded, how each is unique to the communities they serve, what programs and events they currently have underway, what services they offer to the public and their members, and we have confidence that this information is vital for people to know how to work with these organizations and how important it is to join, support, volunteer with, and donate to one or more of these core societies. Imagine you're researching your family genealogy and you discover a link to Reno County, Kansas, but have never really worked with a historical society. Who do you contact? How do you go forward? This program will educate you regarding the Reno County, Kansas Historical Society. If you're a resident in the local area, the program will help you understand what the society has to offer how you can participate and take advantage of the worthwhile events the society sponsors, and how to best support them by volunteering and donating. Today we greet David Reed, the Chief Curator of the Reno County, Kansas Historical Society. Here's a short bio of David for our listeners. David's family has a long history in the Hutchison, Kansas area. David received his Bachelor of Arts degree in Anthropology at the University of Texas, El Paso, and his Master's degree in Archaeology from Wichita State University. David is the local expert regarding the history of Reno County, Kansas, and the artifacts and exhibits at the museum. So I want to say I am thrilled to have the most knowledgeable person in the entire area with us today. Welcome to the show, David, and Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas. I want to dive right in here, David. Uh, First of all, listeners and David, give me a couple of minutes here because I want to say a few things to start with. I'll let you know when I'm done, but I really want you to hear this, David. Okay? Okay. All right. I had some time to take a really good look at your Facebook page, and man, I was so impressed. The depth of history and creativity the museum is sharing with the community is just awesome. 
I hadn't seen it before. I hadn't had a chance to get into it. Um, go ahead. No, I appreciate that. Yep. Listeners, be aware that during this interview, uh, based upon what I saw on the Facebook and the website, there's just no way we're going to be able to cover everything the museum has to offer. We'll do what we can to cover as much as possible in the time we have. But based on what I saw on Facebook, if you're anywhere even remotely near Hutchison, Kansas, you really need to visit the museum. Hey, and plan for a few hours visit, and you really need to sign up and enjoy the events the museum sponsors. They really look fun. Man, David, I'm telling you, I just got to give everyone involved at your society a compliment. What you're doing at the museum is impressive. There are so many educational and exciting things going on all the time. Okay, I'm done now. I just had to get that out. You folks are really working hard. You deserve all the praise you can get, not only from me, but the community and your members. I appreciate that. Now, we got a lot to cover, and I'd like to start with something I noticed that really stood out, just a physical attribute. When I looked at Hutchison on Google Maps, the town of Hutchison is really spread out. And what I mean Mm -hmm. is that unlike other towns that I look at, and maybe it was just me at the time, but it looks like the buildings are really set pretty far back from the road. There's large parking lots and uh, lawns, and there's also some pretty large gaps between buildings and very wide streets. Was it designed that way? It was. Uh, when C.C. Hutchinson first platted out the city, he uh, he increased the width of the, of the streets by about 20 feet extra. I don't know if he was foreseeing the growth of the automotive industry in the 20th century, but uh, he, he planned very well. Uh, most of the first streets in the town are quite wider, not just Main Street, but several of the streets that are east and west of Main Street, and then also some of the more residential neighborhoods that originally started up, like B Avenue, A Avenue, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and all the way out to 4th. They're, they're much wider than, than uh, most Midwestern Yeah, it's really uh, noticeable. Towns. I thought it was just yeah. me, but you're right. Okay. It's, it was yeah, developed that Yeah, he did that on that purpose. Way. Wow. Mm-hmm. How'd the county get its name, Reno County? Uh, Reno County is named after General Jesse Reno. He was a Civil War general. He was killed in 1862, uh, very early in the war. And not only is Reno County named after him, but uh, Fort Reno in Oklahoma and also... Uh, Reno, Nevada are also named after him. What made him so special? Just the fact that he was, was killed early or why would you name a county after him? According to the, the stories that we've gotten from, from history, he was very well respected by his troops. Okay. Uh, he was one of the generals that he would lead from the front. He was with his men at all times. His last thoughts were of his men. So he was very well respected by everybody who knew him. And I think as a way to memorialize him, they named the county after him. Yeah, that's great. How did Hutchinson get its name? Hutchinson was named after C.C. Hutchinson, who was Clinton Carter Hutchinson, who was the founder of, of the town. Got it. So he was there first. He sort of mapped it out and maybe built a few buildings. He followed behind the uh, Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad. And when he got to the Arkansas River, he decided this was a pretty logical place to build a town. He uh, was able to acquire the land from the railroad company and platted out of town and then named it after himself. Wow. It was pretty common practice at those in, in that time. Yeah. That, it's not egotistical at all, is it? <laughs> uh, I guess not. If you're here first and you want, uh, you want to brag about it, that's, uh, that's yeah, a good way yeah. to Let's tell it everybody now. Let's name it after me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the town of Radcliffe. There we go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hey, I looked at your county courthouse. Man, it looks like a very imposing, like FBI kind of building. 
It looks like something out of Blade Runner. It has an oppressive stone facade, and it's really imposing to me. It looks like military, maybe, versus other counties in Kansas, which have these sort of red stone stuff. Is it unique? What can you tell us about that? Well, it's, I wouldn't say it's unique. It's Art Deco. The story of why we have that courthouse is unique. The courthouse we have today is Art Deco. It was built in nine, 1930. And the, the reason why we don't have a red brick courthouse anymore was it ended up having structural damage from a salt mine that was built ah. next door. It destabilized the ground. The courthouse sat on. The original courthouse was built in 1900, and it was a Romanesque style with the real neat pillars and peaks, and, and it was a red brick building. And unfortunately, about 20 years after it was built, the salt plant um, used an evaporative process, destabilized it. They condemned it. It stood vacant for about five years until they settled a lawsuit oh against Kerry uh, Salt. He offered to buy the building, the land, and they used that money to build the current Courthouse. Oh my goodness. So, you know, I have a question to ask you if there's ever been a cave in because of the salt mines. I guess I got my answer, huh? Yeah, well, not a, a cave in exactly, no. But <laughs> in fact, I think that's the only instance that we have of the ground being destabilized. And, and the reason why is because when I say it was next door, I mean it was about 30 feet from the courthouse. Wow. So these wells were very, very close to the courthouse. Wow. Well, that's too bad, but what what year was the new one built? 1930. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah, it has the style of that, huh? Yeah, it's um, it's one of the most pristine examples of an Art Deco courthouse in Kansas. Almost all of it is original, except for, I think, they're, re- they're currently replacing the windows, so it's got a lot of scaffolding on it right now, but I think one of the elevators was replaced in the 1970s, but wow. other than that, everything else is original. Well, it sure is beautiful. I'd love to go inside it and just look around, you know, at the, what they designed back then and built. Mm-hmm. In the history of the area, you have a person, an entrepreneurial person by the name of Ben Blanchard. What can you tell us about that? Oh, well, Ben Blanchard was quite a character. He uh, was originally from Terre Haute, Indiana, started out as a lawyer and decided to, like a, like a lot of men, head, head to the West and came to... Kansas came a uh, land speculator, would be the best way to explain it. He, he didn't really settle in Hutchinson until the early 1880s, mid-1880s. He became quite the broker, um, was able to bring in a lot of business, created a, a mini real estate boom here in the county. To kind of capitalize on the Hutchinson name, he founded the city of South Hutchinson, which is actually across the river, and it is today still a completely separate entity. It's still its own town from separate from Hutchinson. Okay. Yeah, he inadvertently created a real estate boom here. And in in doing so, he tried to entice more businesses to come here. He drilled for what he was hoping was going to be an oil well. Didn't find oil, but he found salt. He didn't really think too much of it. But (laughs) other people, knowing the value of salt, decided to capitalize that. And so after he created a, a real estate boom, which busted in the late 1880s he created he inadvertently created a salt boom so that within four years of him finding salt 16 salt plants had been built in the county and there was quite the rush on to capitalize on salt the salt was not easily transferred out into the middle of kansas at that time so by the time it got out here it was a little bit more expensive than it would be if you were say east of the mississippi well is that where my morton salt comes from 
Joy Morton came in towards the mid-1890s, and he saw the the benefits of investing in salt here. So he began buying up uh, salt plants, and I think he bought up six or seven of them, and he closed all of them down except one, which is still in operation today in South Hutchinson wow. on the site of one of the earliest salt plants. So, so it is where my Morton salt comes from. Yeah, uh, that's where some of it comes from. A oh good, a goodness. good portion of it. Yeah, <laughs> I was just kidding around, but yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, oh, yeah. There's three fantastic. salt plants here in, in 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 the county still. So thank you, Ben, for discovering salt. Yeah, he uh, wow. he, he did he did a good thing there. Hey, I read the Kansas State Fair is held annually in Hutchison, but mm-hmm. the capital city of Kansas is Topeka. And typically, I see state fairs held in the capital city. Can you tell us why the state fair is held in Hutchison instead of Topeka? Well, that is a a, a pretty long story. Books have been written about it. Okay. <laughs> it okay. It's a it's very politically charged at the time. Um, up until the 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 time when Reno County was awarded the the state fair, there were many quote unquote state fairs around Kansas at, okay. at various times. And they all started to kind of compete against each other. By 1910, 1911, it was really starting to, you were kind of getting rid of some of the smaller ones. And it basically came down to Hutchinson and Topeka. And uh, Hutch- the Hutchinson bigwigs, the, the movers and shakers of the town, were able to get President Taft to come here for some ceremonies. Oh, he cool. visited the fair at that time. And so with his presence and then with a little bit more political motivation in <clears throat> Topeka, um, with uh, Emerson Carey and another man named uh, John Graber, they uh, were able to finally get Hutchinson recognized as the official place for the wow. state fair. And that was in 1913. And I think it worked out well for everybody because it's far more centrally located than Topeka would have been. Yeah, yeah. Well, plus they could tell Taft, hey, you're not getting any salt on your table at the White House if you don't <laughs> do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something really cool is Hutchison is going to be 150 years old coming up. Yep, that's and true. What are you planning at the society for that? Uh, the society is going to be taking part of larger events at the county level. I know they're still in the early planning stages of those events, but I know they've got a lot of stuff planned and whatever they decide they want to. There's lots of ideas. They're still honing them in and whatever ideas they come up with, I'm sure we'll be involved with them. We, we've got some stuff on the side that we're, we're contemplating as well, but we're waiting to find out what the uh, county and the city would like to do before we decide to either add to it or modify our own plans in order to do something special based on, around the museum. Oh, cool. So uh, when is it actually 150 years old? When is the date? Well, the county itself is 1871. The town is 1872. And so there was a little bit of a discussion on whether or not they should do one and then the other, or do both at the same time. And I think they've decided to do both at the same time next year. Oh, very cool. It allows the kind of the, the, uh, the pandemic conditions to settle down a little bit more and to make this a little bit bigger of an event that it, that it deserves. I hope they do a good job because the town deserves it. Uh, the downtown, yes. has it been designated as a historic district on the Register of Historic Places? Yes, it actually is on the National Register. There are two districts. There's a North District and a South District. They're called the Downtown Cores. And then we also have, I think there's about half a dozen separate buildings around the downtown area that have been designated. Uh, the Fox Theater 
is a national nationally registered building. The Hoke building is also registered, and that one is currently being renovated, which is fantastic. The building is a little over 100 years old, and it's getting a new lease on life, and it's going to be fabulous when they're done renovating it. Yeah, the Fox is really beautiful. I can't recall the Hoke yes. building, but you've got a lot of really It's across the street. Oh, it is? Yep. Okay. The, yep, sure is. So the Fox Theater was built in 1930. It's uh, an original Fox Theater, and they're all over the country. This one is particularly special because of its marquee. It's one of the first to have this type of lighted setup. And the theater itself is almost completely original. It's undergone an expansion. It went from one story to three shortly after it was built. Oh, wow. And then they moved. Yeah, it's, it's a huge, huge building now. And then they moved the ticket booth from the outside on the street to the inside of the of the theater. But other than that, the the theater is almost completely original. It's a fantastic beautiful building. Yeah, I'd I'd love to get on a plane and come to Hutchison, Kansas and just walk <laughs> around. I'm serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell the audience, you know, try to give us an overview of who you are, who the society is, the communities you serve, something about your membership and the mission of your society? Sure. So the the Reno County Museum was founded in 1961. We serve directly the, the county population, which is about a little over 60,000 people. And of course, we have visitors from all over Kansas. Uh, Wichita is only, it's less than an hour away, so we get visitors from Wichita as well. Currently, we I am the curator here. We have an archivist, and we do our best to preserve and present all of the artifacts that have been donated to the museum over the last 60 years. Uh, I think we've done a pretty good job in and keeping that tradition alive with some of the new exhibits that we've had going on. So Chief Curator, you're the guy that looks at the artifacts and says, we're going to put this one out for display versus not? Right. So Thomas is our archivist. And what I like to tell people is that Thomas is in charge of taking care of all of the items. I'm in charge of making stories about all of those items. And when I say stories, I don't mean I'm making up fiction. I'm, you know, I'm researching who these people were that own these artifacts, finding out the important details of their lives. What are these artifacts to these people? Um, Because at the end of the day, you can always replace an artifact, but what you can't replace are the people that have lived here, that have used these items, that have made Reno County what it is today. And so I always take greater pleasure in researching the lives of these people and, and coming up with the story. I, I like to think of myself as a, as a storyteller in truth. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Have you always been interested in history? Yeah, I, I, uh, I've always been very passionate about history. I, uh, I got my bachelor's degree in anthropology, and I got my master's degree in archaeology. I was lucky enough to, to find this, this job here, and uh, I've, I love coming to work every day. You never know what somebody may bring through the door. You never know what artifact you may come across upstairs. We have... Over 30,000 artifacts. Um, I've not seen all of them. And so every time you try to make a new exhibit and you start looking at the uh, database, you never know what what artifact is up there waiting for you to talk about. That's fantastic. Can you tell us a couple of funny or interesting stories from the annals of your society's history? Uh, One of the interesting things about the museum is uh, we originally, when we started in 1961, It took about three years before they were able to get a building to house the collection in. And the first museum building was a house that was formerly owned by the mayor of Hutchinson. And the museum stayed there for about four years until the the owner wanted the building back. And we we were forced to move to another building, which was offered to us by the town of Haven, which is about, oh, it's about 20 minutes south of here. 
And the museum moved into their old, I guess you could call it, meeting center. Uh, They called it the Township Hall. And the museum operated out of there from 1968 until 1986. And the building itself was incredibly old, even after the museum moved into it. And when the collection began to get too large, the board members realized that it was time that we needed to find something a little bit more permanent. And in order to entice the public of the county and to, to get people motivated to help contribute towards moving the museum, they had a report drawn up. They, they flew in an outside consultant who took a look at the building and the environment that they were currently in. And about the only positive thing that the consultant was able to find was that the building was standing. <laughs> Everything about the building was in pretty rough shape. Um, it, the, the walls were fallen uh, the plaster was falling off the walls. The oh, lighting man. was bad. The plumbing leaked. You name it, this building had issues with it. And so they were able to motivate pretty much everybody in the county. They were able to raise enough money to buy not just one building, but two buildings. And the current museum currently occupies two buildings. I noticed that the two buildings are sort of put together. One is called the Great American Life Building for some reason. And mm-hmm. somehow you joined them together. Right. So the Great American Life Building was built in 1917. It was originally a life insurance company. The other building that houses our collection and our administrative offices was originally called the Rosemont Apartments, and it was built in 1913. They both went through their ups and downs as as businesses. The Great American Life Insurance Company was there until the 1960s, roughly, and the Rosemont continued as an apartment complex well into the 70s, uh, where it eventually sat empty for about 10 years before the museum bought the property and the great American, yeah, the great American life building stayed in use up until the day we moved in, in 1986, the uh, previous owner sold his business and retired after we purchased it. And then during the renovation process, they put in what we call the bridge and that joins the two buildings together. And that central bridge used to be in an alleyway and now it houses on the first floor, our gift shop and lobby, and then on the top floor is where our research room is. Wow, that's a cool story. So so both of these buildings are historic, and you sort of joined yes. them so you'd have more space. That's correct. Do you get more archive space and more museum space at the same time? The museum space, there's a lot of space in the, the Great American Life building for, for us to exhibit. The uh, Rosemont, the collection was not nearly as big in 1986 as it is today, and we have almost reached capacity in this building for artifact storage, which is a testament to how the people of this county perceive their history, and they are very active in their donations. We get donations that range from, you know, small photographs all the way up to furniture. It's a a large testament for a, a community of this size to rival other organizations in areas that have towns that are uh, factors of magnitude larger than, than Hutchinson and Reno County in general. Yeah, I could see it on the Facebook page. You've got total community involvement, and it looks like everybody's having fun and everybody's participating. It's it's very mm-hmm. nice to see. Yep. Since we have a Christmas episode, I, I did a little bit of research on Christmas in Hutchinson, and at the time, the Hutch News was a weekly newspaper, so they published... January 2nd, 1873, and talked a little bit about the events that happened on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And I wanted to just read a couple of little excerpts from from that article. That would be great. All right. So the first one 
We have several times stated that the people of Hutchinson as a class are as intelligent, moral, and refined as may be found in, at any eastern town. They have come here to stay and brought with them their religion, their manners, and their household gods, fully imbued with the spirit contained in the motto of our wonderfully rigorous state, ad astra per aspera. Hence, when they do anything, it is in mature, simplistic manner, perhaps never before found in a frontier town, only one year old, and the appropriate manner in which they celebrated Christmas adds one more to many evidences of their sense of propriety. Young people congregated at several residents for the purpose of practicing Christmas songs and preparing ornaments for the Sunday school tree to be unveiled Christmas Eve. Groups of both big and little folks thronged Meyer and Company's drugstore and made constant and effective attacks upon the splendid assortments of Christmas wares there displayed in all their glory. At 6.30 Christmas Eve, the schoolroom was brilliantly lighted and a large crowd composed a great measure of happy children assembled for the purpose of annihilating a magnificent Christmas tree. It was not an evergreen, but was made to appear as one by skillful fingers and the use of green tissue paper. It was loaded from top to root with presents and ornaments, while the table beneath was covered with books, boxes, and pictures. After appropriate music and prayer, the work of distribution began. How the little folks rejoiced at this phase of the game. The whole affair passed off with great hilarity and satisfaction. The Eagle House was filled to its capacity with the elite of Hutchinson to enjoy entertainment given by the Quadrille Club. McMurray's string band was on hand and all went merry as a wedding bell until five o'clock in the morning. When we waked Christmas morn, the little boys were popping firecrackers and torpedoes, which they kept going all day. And the article ends with, may the holidays ever hereafter be so pleasant. And it seems to me that Christmas in 1872 is pretty much the same as it is today. That's fantastic. I wish you much luck with your Christmas in the courtyard, and I hope you have a really warm Christmas. I love Christmas. Yeah, me too. I love it too. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. La 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 la. Tis the season to be jolly. La 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 la. Don we know our gay apparel? La 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 la. Throw the ancient Yuletide carol.
Reno County Kansas Museum is fairly large, as you mentioned. Right across the street is this really large building called Memorial Hall. What's the history of that building? Memorial Hall was built in 1911, and that was the building that President Taft came here to inaugurate. He helped set the cornerstone of that building. He was invited here by the Masons. It has served as a venue for concerts and events and meetings, you name it. It's a very large building for for that type of event. They still use it today. It's been renovated several times over the years, most recently in the 90s. However, the building, because of its age, suffers from some drawbacks, such as, believe it or not, it has no air conditioning. Oh, wow. And uh, Yeah, and it also has some uh, ADA uh, compliance issues. But other than that, the building is structurally sound. One of the fun things about that building is that it sits on top of Cow Creek, which is a river that runs right next to the museum, underneath the building, and wow. continues out. I had read so something it, about that, and, and the, yep, the it, article I cares. read said that you could go down into the basement of the building and actually look at the creek. That is correct. Oh I've never goodness. done it myself, but uh, that is correct. Wow, that is so unusual. Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, I hope it lasts long and it, and it serves the community for many more years. Yeah, it's very it's very busy even today. It it still gets plenty of uh, uh, events uh, being uh, taking place inside. I read on your website that you have a new vision that started in 2020 that impacts Reno County citizens. What is that vision, and how has the community reacted to it? Well, the vision was a complete overhaul of our main floor gallery. the The gallery that we had down there hadn't been really updated for almost 15 years. And it it was starting to show. We decided to come up with a new concept that would allow us to tell a more complete history of the county in a chronological sequence. In doing that, we decided to kind of break it out into phases. Shortly after we came up with this vision, uh, COVID hit, and we were forced to slow our, our progress down considerably. We've been tackling an exhibit at a time where we can. We've removed walls. We've added new exhibits. We've moved oh, things wow. around. And the the response has been overwhelmingly positive. I think people are very excited to see this uh, more comprehensive style of museum so that people can come in and, and find out not just one aspect of Reno County, but the entire chronological history of Reno County to, to see how we got from point A to point B. And, that is uh, so important. Yeah, we're very excited to, to, to finish this. With any luck, we should finish it by next year. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I read that you hosted a ghost hunt and live stream for Halloween on October 31st and that you involved mm-hmm. the Wichita Paranormal Research Society. What can you tell us about that event? Well, it's one of our popular, more popular events. Because of its small size, it was uh, an event we were able to continue through the pandemic. We were able to keep our groups fairly small. And that's kind of a necessity just because of the the spaces that people go into, things of that nature. And it's because of museums having this antique and this old time and this uh, kind of atmosphere of of spookiness. Uh, It's always been very popular. People can come in and they can get into parts of the museum that the average visitor doesn't get to see. Most of the staff has had some kind of unexplained experience in the museum. And so that kind of yeah, that kind of storytelling also helps really kind of build interest in it. The Rosemont tends to be the the spooky building. <laughs> yeah, and and this 
Wichita Paranormal Research Society, have they like gotten, oh, what do they call those? Um, EVPs where you record a, a ghost saying something or any of that kind of thing? Yeah, they've been out here a couple of times to, to help us. I think the last time was a couple of years ago and they did pick up a couple of EVPs before. One of them was in our children's area where they caught what sounded like somebody banging a drum. And we do have a drum up there for the kids to play with. And they've heard some responses from, from questions. We didn't get any hits this time around, but we almost every other time we've had something happen. That's got to be so much fun for the people that participate. It is. Just it is. great. And do you live stream we that? Have, we do. And every time that we've live streamed it, we've been able to kind of hone our technology. As you know, podcasts and live streaming can always have some kind of technical difficulty. And with a building of this age and this size, it it always presents unique challenges. But uh, every time it's gotten a little bit better and a little bit easier to do. David, it's time for a break for a few minutes. Please hold tight, grab a beverage, and I'll bring you back when we come back. Uh, All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. You're listening to Preservation Oaks, where we celebrate the great work of historical and genealogical societies and give you the information you need to get involved and have fun doing it. Hello, listeners. I hope you're enjoying the program. Please show your support for the MicroStream Radio Mission by becoming a patron at Patreon. Providing financial support helps keep your favorite programs on the air today and in the future. A contribution of any amount makes you a member. Show your support today at www.patreon.com backslash microstreamradio. Your support allows us to bring you more unique and interesting programs. Thank you for being here, and thank you so much for your support. This is Sandra Bankston, the president of the Fremont County Historical Society, and I love listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe on MicroStream Radio. This is Peggy. My friends call me Pickles. I'm a friend of Sean Thomas's. You know, regardless of where you're from, or which historical or genealogical society you're working with on family research, proper etiquette is important. You don't want to appear to have been raised by wolves. It's a good idea to know some essential skills when working with these valuable societies. Using proper etiquette will help you support the organization who are performing the sometimes grueling work to find information for you. Here are essential skills for you to know. Number 1. If you're communicating with a historical or genealogical society and asking for their help in finding information about family members, pay close attention to their policies and take cues from them. Number 2. Many genealogical and historical societies do not have all their paper and photographic records digitized and online. Therefore, things are not fast and easy for them, unless they get lucky. Many times, the society relies on the skill and knowledge of volunteers who comb through filing cabinets, books, directories, and newspapers to find information you are seeking, and that will be valuable to you. This can take hours, days, and sometimes weeks, depending on what you're requesting. Be aware of this effort. It is often invisible to you but quite real. Number 3. Regardless of the official policies, which are generally very low cost, whenever you make a request to a society, please donate liberally to help cover the cost of the time it takes to complete the research, make copies, 
mail information to you, and so on. Number 4, if the society finds information that helps you, and from that, you know your family lived in the area, then good etiquette is to join and become a member, and then to donate regularly. You can always use Amazon Smile. Doing this causes automatic donations to flow to the society as you shop. As a member, you often receive discounts both on the books you may need, as well as additional research from the society. If you live in the area, it's a good idea to volunteer. That way, you can get to know the records and the history of the area. Having this knowledge will greatly improve the outcomes of your research. Number 5. Whether the research is fruitful or not, always send a thank you note or card in the mail, and don't wait more than a day or two after research concludes. Address the society and thank them for the work they did and the information they sent, or just for trying hard to find something of value for you. Then add another short, positive comment to show your appreciation. Your note may be brief but heartfelt. It's easy to have good manners. These basic rules are just common sense. Tada for now my friends. If you're a historical or genealogical society listening to Preservation Oaks and you'd like to be a guest on the program, please email preservationoaks at gmail.com. Again, that's preservationoaks at gmail.com. Thank you. When my heart is heavy and my soul is weary. When I don't have the answers and can't imagine what the next day, or week, or month will look like. I close my eyes and remember I was never meant to have all the answers and I was never meant to know what the future holds. So I press into what I do know. God is good. God is faithful. In this world we will have pain and sorrow, but we can take heart knowing God has overcome. He is our provider, our comforter. Our ever-present help in times of trouble. And there, with my eyes closed and my heart focused on my father, I find peace. And now, back to Preservation Oak. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with David Reed, the chief curator of the Reno County Museum located in Hutchison, Kansas. For this segment, we're going to focus on the society's role in the community and the services they provide. You know, I love Thanksgiving and I really love Christmas. I think that's a great tradition, gathering for Christmas. And from what I read, it's really nice. Can you tell us about it? Christmas in the courtyard is one of those things that we, we really enjoy doing. It's one of those events that is completely free. We just want people to come in and experience the museum, hang out with us, get to know us, get to uh, be part of our role in the community, and to, uh, and to just have a good time and to just get out of the house and do something different. We always try to do something unique. Last year, with the, the pandemic going on, it was a little bit uh, smaller crowd than, than normal. This year, we're trying to do some new things. We've got Santa's coming. 
He's probably going to read some some books for the kids. We've got some other events planned for uh, for for the kids to have a good time with. We're looking at maybe trying to get some carolers to to come and sing. But we try to go all out for Christmas. Halloween and Christmas are our two. Not are the not only are they our biggest events, they are undoubtedly our favorite events. Last year, I'll change topics slightly. Our Halloween event. We only had maybe 150, 200 people. Okay. This Halloween, we had over 800. Oh, and that's so great. we're hoping, yeah, we're hoping that this year we're going to have a similar turnout for our Christmas in the courtyard and that we have four times the amount of people because the more people that come to see us, that shows us how much they appreciate us, how much yep. they want to be here and support us. And believe me, you, you guys deserve it. You're, you're doing just incredible things. Right across the street from the museum is something called the Salt City Business College. It's a building there. Is that still in operation? Not as the Salt City Business College. There is a uh, a business over there now, but uh, the Salt City Business College as an entity shut down in 1980, and it had been founded in 1880, so it lasted exactly 100 years. Wow. They were a business college that taught people basically business practices, bookkeeping, how to operate business machines, things of nice. that nature. And it was a very formalized, accredited school that was very popular and very prominent for a very long time. Yeah, and, that'd be a, uh, still, it's still a great fantastic thing. building. It'd still be a great thing to have in any community, something where you get yeah. out of high school and now you specialize in all of the things you need to start and operate a business, right? Yeah, that's very, exactly right. Very nice. What I think is the coolest thing I've seen or heard of yet, in Hutchison, your organization manages something you call the Stratica which is a local salt mine, if I understand it correctly. I read that visitors get to go 650 feet underground to tour the mine, but that's not really the coolest thing. That's cool, but that's not the coolest thing. There's a couple of things that make this one of the coolest things I've seen in a long time. Number one, the mine goes under a portion of Hutchison's east side of the city, And so you're, you know, you've got a city on top of you. And then number two, which is something I've never heard of, is that the society sponsors an annual 5K run, a 10K run, something you call the Tour de Salt bicycle race, completely underground, 650 feet. That's 100% correct. The salt mine is 650 feet underground. It's been in continuous operation since 1923. It's still... Uh, has active mining in it today. The portion that Stratica occupies was originally excavated in the 1950s. Wow. So that part of the mine is is inactive for mining. We have a another company that's down there with us called Underground Vaults and Storage, and they provide storage facilities for people that want to put documents and things of that nature in, in a safe and secure place. The salt mine itself is one of the safest places in Kansas. It's never had a an, an accident. There's never been a cave-in. Yeah, um, there was a, a small fire once upon a time that didn't last very long, and most people don't even talk about, uh, didn't cause any injuries. It's immune to earthquakes. Um, wow. It's, it's a very safe place to be. Uh, and it, one of the biggest questions that people always ask is, you know, do you have, do you ever experience earthquakes? Yeah. And I'm not a geologist, so there's a very scientific reason involved, but yeah, you don't feel anything underground and it's a very nice, calm environment, very stable environment. Yeah. Plus it, must, the, it must be good for you because, you know, I can buy these uh, little lamps made out of Himalayan salt blocks, right? And supposedly, <laughs> supposedly they're good for you uh, in some way, right? 
it, it does seem to be easier to breathe down there. That is for sure. Wow. There's no bugs down there. And, and one of the common misconceptions is that people assume that it's a very tight space when in reality, the way the mine is, um, each corridor is more than 40 feet across and the ceilings in part of in parts of, the, of Stratica are 10 feet tall. Wow. So it's a very open environment down there. Well, just, I mean, it's got to be huge if you can do a 5K and a 10K run down there. That's correct. Yeah, wow. it's uh, it, it runs off into the mine in places that normally, if you're a visitor to the museum uh, to the museum down there, you don't get to see. We get runners from, from all over who, who come here just to, to take part in this. Uh, it's a pretty unique event. That's uh, what I was going to... Oh, you go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say the, the bicyclists, the cyclists that come from all over the country, yeah. I think uh, the last time they had it, they had people from as far away as Washington and Oregon. So people definitely come to, to take part in that. Well, I tell you, even if I was living in Italy or, you know, anywhere in the world and I heard that I could do, a, you know, a tour de salt on 650 feet underground, you can't do that anywhere. I mean, that's, <laughs> no. that's got to be a bucket list kind of thing, right? It is, it is for a lot of people. It is, it is something else and it's something else, else to see, because like I said, with the size of the, the, the mine, uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable to see that many people racing abreast. You can race four five, six bicycles across wow. and not even come close to hitting somebody. So it's, it's a great environment. I started doing some research to try to find out, you know, how unique this is. So on the interwebs, I only found three other underground events that even came close to this. There was one in Colorado, and I can't remember exactly what it was. There was one in Kansas City, Missouri. And finally, there's a, the Natural Bridge Caverns in Texas. But there's just not a place like this anywhere, really. No, and they, they have not only the bicycling and 5Ks, they also have a... Uh a theatrical show that comes through once a year called Murder in the Mind, where it's a uh, murder mystery oh, wow. uh, show with dinner. And then they also have a conference venue down there. So no that if you way. wanted to, yeah, if you <laughs> want to book business meetings, they've, they've hosted weddings down there. It's a very unique environment to, uh, to, to take advantage of. See, that is so cool. Oh man, that's the coolest thing I've heard in a long time. Mm. Is the salt mine still in operation? Yes. Yeah, it's uh, currently owned by Hutch Salt. Originally, it was built by Kerry Salt in 1923. Wow. It's, it's been in continuous operation. They have quite the facility. If you uh, pull it up on Google Earth, you'll see Stratica is a tiny little building just to the southeast of a very large complex, and that's where Hutch Salt is, and they still pull out uh, several tons of salt a day. Wow. Do you think they've ever um, pulled out something like a woolly mammoth or any of that? salt that was laid down in the mine is from the Permian times. Uh, it's a very old seabed and um, okay. it, it's very unlikely to find anything that would be um, that old, that far underground. So it's a pretty, the salt that's down there is 98% pure. It's a very wow. good salt. It's a very uh, refined salt. It doesn't take a lot of work once it gets up to the surface to make it so that it's usable uh, by the general public. Wow, that is very cool. Something I read, which is also pretty cool, is you. the Society had a project to interview members of the African-American community. On your website, you call these people the pioneering families and leaders in Hutchison. Can 
you tell us more about that project? Yeah, so this project was started a couple of years ago. Shortly before I got here, it was completed. We're starting a new phase of it, but essentially the first phase was reaching out to the African-American community because in Hutchinson, especially in the museum, they're underrepresented, and we wanted to change that and to be a little bit more inclusive with that part of the community. And so the initial phase was to reach out to people who were pioneers in the field that they had decided to go into business with. So whether they were mechanics or firefighters or teachers or nurses, if they were doing community service, we wanted to, to talk to those people and show how they have contributed to the Reno County community as a whole. And it was an overwhelmingly positive experience. And uh, it, was, it was great to add not just their artifact to the museum, but their stories. Yeah, because yeah. for me, the stories are always more important. Those are the things that cannot be replaced. To have those contributions where we can permanently save them for future generations is, has been a very meaningful um, exhibit for us. So what happens with those? Is the society going to write a book, a history book on them, or can the public listen to those histories? Well, one of the things that we're trying to do is, in light of COVID, we've been trying to make more of our archive accessible. And so one one of our goals is to use our YouTube channel in a more productive way. And we're attempting to have those histories that have been either recorded orally or with video to make them accessible where people can watch at their leisure and have access to them whenever they need to do any kind of research or they just want to know more about Reno County history. Yeah. So we're working on, on trying to make those accessible. And I don't remember the exact amount, but there are at least 100 oral histories that wow. um, we are in the process of trying to make available. That's amazing. Just think if you had a C.C. Hutchison himself talking about how the town started and you know so on. This is a treasure trove of history. So one of the stories that I like to relate to people is you see photographs all the time and you see photographs of buildings, but you don't know much more about them other than factual dates and who operated in there and where. And there's a building that is in many early photos of Hutchinson and it's called the Reno House. And the Reno House was one of the first hotels in Hutchinson and it would provide settlers and pioneers, you know, a place to stay. Well, It's always been a static object in most photographs until I recently came across a story where a man came in. He was 10 10 or 11 years old at the time when he came here with his family, and they stayed at the Reno house. And in his telling of his family's history, he said his mother refused to stay there more than two days because the bed bugs were so bad that she couldn't sleep at night. Oh, my (laughs) goodness. those Those are the kind of stories you never get to hear about through a photograph. Absolutely. You have to have somebody tell you those. And so to have oral histories, to have family family histories, those are the things that we, we absolutely love because that brings these buildings to life. Yeah. You and the community are very lucky. Hey, who was Solomon Butler? Solomon Butler. He was a very fascinating and he was a great man. Solomon Butler's family was originally from Oklahoma. Um, they had... Uh, His father had originally been a slave. He served in the Civil War. After the Civil War was over, he got married, went to Oklahoma, homesteaded. They had a little bit of problem with uh, land ownership title. Uh, His family was forced to relocate up here to Hutchinson. Solomon was in the sixth or seventh grade at the time, and he had two sisters and a brother, and he went to high school here up until his senior year. And before he joined the basketball or football team, Hutchinson High School had been a losing team for many, many years. And Solomon Butler was quite the athlete. And for the two years that he played football for Hutchinson High, 
they went undefeated. Wow. He wanted to stay and finish out his time here, but uh, like most places in uh, the 19, at this point it would have been about 1915, 1916, there was still a little bit of a, a racism issue. I shouldn't say a little bit. There was a racism issue yeah, yeah. Um, in, in this part of Kansas. Hutchinson has never been exempt from racial issues. They've been a little bit more muted here. And yeah. so he was able to excel in this community, whereas places that he tended to play, like in Wichita, uh, Great Bend, those places would not take the field while he was playing. No way. And so... Solomon decided to save his teammates a lot of issues, and he decided to move up to Iowa, and he followed a, his football coach to Iowa, and he went to Dubuque University. He graduated from there. He was the first African-American to quarterback a football team for all four years. From there, he, he made the Olympic the Olympic team. Wow. Unfortunately, he, he hurt himself in the, in the qualifying trials, and mm. he was forced to pull out. But he was very instrumental in staying active in the African-American community. He eventually settled in Chicago and was very active in promoting sports. He was a sports writer for a, for a black-owned newspaper there. He was quite, quite an amazing individual. And while he didn't live his entire life here, I like to think that his formative years were really shaped by the atmosphere here in Hutchinson. And I know <clears throat> in the next few years, there's a professor at Dubuque University who's currently writing an autobiography, which oh. should be a definitive source of information for, for uh, Solomon. Oh, that's and great. It, I'm very excited to hear that come out. Yep. God bless Solomon. That is a fantastic story. I know everybody is squeezed for funding these days, and uh, especially mm -hmm. with COVID, it just sort of put the brakes on a lot of things. What are your society's objectives and funding goals for 2022? For 2022, we, we hope to build on the uh, success that we've had from, from our Halloween event and what we anticipate for our Christmas in the courtyard. Um, we've got some things coming up that we're planning on. We haven't solidified. We're thinking about having a, a zombie run uh, that hasn't been finalized yet. We're also in the process of creating basically an antiques roadshow style event to help oh, nice. um, promote interest and also fundraise for the museum. And that will also take place if we can make this happen. We want to do that in Memorial Hall. Those are the kind of things that we're, we're really anticipating, looking forward to. And uh, hopefully with that funding, we'll be able to finish up some of the, uh, the larger projects that are facing us in the gallery right now. Some walls need to come up, some walls need to go down. Yeah. With, with the way the society is, is operating right now, there's a lot of things that are up in the air and you, yeah. you can plan a lot but you don't know until you get a lot closer. <laughs> yep, agreed. What kind of fundraising activities? I know you have the Christmas annual event, the Halloween annual event. What else is going on that brings in funds for the organization? Um, we, we do have a conference room here that uh, is very popular with, with events. Uh, people like to uh, rent out our conference room for birthdays. We've had baby showers here just recently. Uh, we have a lot of professional meetings that people like to rent out. We can do it during the day. We do it on the weekends. It's a very versatile environment. Um, our children's area upstairs, our Oodleplex, is a very heavy draw for us right now. Parents like to have a place that's safe that's indoors, that's yeah. a little bit different, a little bit educational. So they come in here. And, and while we operate on don donations, parents are more than eager to, to donate towards the upkeep of the Oodleplex. And we have a lot of great changes coming for the Oodleplex. We've already done one. We've got another one that's planned for the spring. We hope to just keep changing it so that the kids are excited to come here. It, it's yeah, yeah. Otherwise it gets week. boring for them, right? Exactly. Yeah. And we have parents, at least once a week, I'll have a parent tell me, 
my my parents used to bring me when I was a kid, and now I'm bringing my kids. And that's the kind of stuff that we want to continue. Oh, yeah, that's the, great. That, that the parents today and those kids and their kids, they all come back to the museum. That's great. Do you guys have like online shopping on your website or do you sell like coins or books or apparel or things like that? Yes. <laughs> uh, we have a, an online store that has most of our items um, available. We have a brick program where you can um, have a personalized brick placed in our courtyard. Oh, fantastic. Um, we have clothing. We have, uh, we have several books on our, on our website. We're in the process of uh, trying to reprint two other books to, to put in our gift shop. The gift shop is just growing by leaps and bounds, and we're real excited to see what the new year is going to bring for, for the gift shop. We've got a lot of ideas and a lot of unique things that we're looking forward to putting in there. Before, it was more of a generalized gift shop where you can go in and you find the, the typical gift shoppy things that you would find at one coast, one, one side of the United States to the other. And we want to be a little bit more specific to Reno County so that when you leave yeah. here, you leave with a piece of Reno County. Yeah, that's very cool. Do you have different membership levels? Yeah, we have several membership levels. Because we have Stratica, when you're a member of one, you also get benefits to the other because we're all under the same banner of the historical society. So you do get a benefit on both both organizations. Oh, that's great. When, you, when you're a member, you will get uh, discounts to the, to the gift shops. There's uh, discounts on some of the rentals. We have a, an emailing list that will tell you about upcoming events any kind of specials that we might be running. We do offer all of that. So those those ways of supporting the museum are, are very helpful to us. Uh, in the past, we had a, a magazine publication called The Legacy. Yeah. There's an effort to try to bring that back as a digital uh, entity, and that would become something that we would supplement into our membership. But again... I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I need to ask, what replaces The yeah. Legacy Journal? Is there anything right now that is replacing it? So the legacy, even though we don't have it anymore, we did digitize the entire collection, and they are available on uh, issue.com, which is issuu.com. And you can actually go there, or you can come to our website, and you can click and view the past issues that ran from 1990 to 2015, and they're all online to, to view whenever you want. Yeah, that's very cool. And it's very cool that you're thinking about bringing it back. I still think there's a place for journals like that. I'm not quite sure. Mm -hmm. I haven't figured out in my own mind what they should contain. I know they should contain news of the society, but a lot of, like the New England Journal, right, you know, had, <clears throat> excuse me, all of the new records, or they had a piece on, you know, here's this town and here's all the people that lived in this town. And so people would save those and refer back to them for their research. Well, the journal, uh, believe it or not, is still a very handy tool for me. I've found, I find myself still referring to them every once in a while because to be honest, there's no sense in redoing work that's already been done. Yep. And so if somebody's asking me for research on somebody, I'll check the legacy. And if there is, hey, here's a digital copy and I can email it to them and they will have more information faster than I could just do over for them. So it becomes a very handy, uh, a handy tool for me uh, to, to serve um, not just myself, but the community who may want to know some of these old stories. And because some of these issues are from the early 90s, there's people out there who've probably never seen any of those issues. And to make them digitally accessible um, is, is a great and valuable tool for us. Sure is. Do you have any sort of specialized certificates for people? There's been several ideas that we've kicked around. Um, in the past, we've had 
programs where kids, there was a summer program where kids could become basically a, a youth museum curator. Oh, cool. <laughs> and they would, get a little, they would get a little certificate for that. But uh, at the moment, we, we don't have one of those programs, but we look forward to being able to do something like that again. I really like that idea, youth curator. Yeah. Oh, and they could get to learn something cool about history and be able to relate it to people coming in and then they get a certificate. Yeah, it, the, pro, the program was very successful. It lasted for about six weeks. Every year they would do it for about six weeks and it was two or three hours a day, uh, a couple days a week. The kids would come in, they would learn a new aspect of, of history and it was very popular. popular Keeps class. you guys busy too. I mean, you guys are busy all the time. That's amazing. Yeah, but th- this is the best kind of busy when we have oh, yeah. kids coming in who are who are so excited to be here. We love having kids in the museum to, to, to check out the history because they take that with them. And we, we like that they have that passion and we want them to keep that so that they continue to be motivated to uh, participate, not just, not just in the museum, but in their community to help drive that history. Yeah. So we're always, we're always excited to have programs that involve kids. That's fantastic. Speaking of the community, how's COVID-19 affecting your society or how has it affected your society and the community? Well, like most museums, I think uh, our visitors have have uh, dropped off considerably. Um, they've started to come back slowly, but that was to be expected. We shut down for a couple of months when the when COVID first hit, and then since then we've been taking the necessary precautions that are recommended by the county yeah. to to keep everybody safe, and we've maintained our our normal hours of operation. We clean and sanitize our children's area um, on a daily basis so that. None of the kids are getting sick. We want to be a presence that's safe and that people can still be actively participating in. And we understand that there's a lot of apprehension out there, but we just want them to know that this is a safe place that they can be and still have something to do in the community when a lot of other things may may be very curtailed. Yep. Another thing I was looking at was you've used this thing called pocket sites to create a historic walking tour of the community. I really like yep. that. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that was um, something I, I stumbled across. Um, I'd, he- I'd heard of other towns doing it, and, I, and they had done their own proprietary software. And doing some research, I found that Pocket Sites offers software that you can download onto your PC, yep. set up your own historic uh, tour the way that you want, and then from there it updates onto their app and so that anybody can take advantage of that. And... The, one of the great things about Pocket Sites is that they have unlimited tours that, that um, you can subscribe to. And so we decided to do that, and we invited the, the Art Council to participate. And they have also created two art tours that you can also follow. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, museums are not just curating history. We also want to curate culture. Yeah. And so if people can be involved in art and appreciate art, and they've done a fantastic job in taking a photo of what that artistic object is and telling you about the artist and telling you about what it is you're looking at. And that's a really great tool to help facilitate in the community. How do you keep the community informed about the progress of the society and achieving its mission? I know the newsletter is not there, but you know, how do you get the word out to the members well, we, of the society? We have a very active uh, Facebook page and the community has been very responsive. We try to keep things fun. We try to keep things fresh. We try to keep them involved and contributing to our Facebook our Facebook posts. So that way we're not just telling you about a thing. We want you to be involved in understanding what this thing is. We try to be funny. We try to be clever. It's almost overwhelmingly positive. And every month, 
our numbers continue to grow on our Facebook page. And something to kind of tell the Reno County residents, I did the math and per capita, we have more people involved on our Facebook page than Wichita does. So that's a great thing for us. It just lit me up when I saw all of the involvement and and actually I saw not only involvement, but I saw people having fun. And and that yep. just got me. I was like, okay, I'm hooked. I want to go to Hutchison. <laughs> we have we have several historians that also have their own Facebook groups, and uh, we all collaborate. And um, it, it's it's a fantastic environment for history because it, it, when we make a post, that post tends to get shared between at least half a dozen other historical groups that are on Facebook, oh, and nice. so it it just branches out into all aspects and all areas of, of Reno County and into the, the nation as a whole. Every once in a while, we'll get out into the, the national level and people will see us. And that's always an exciting thing that, that little old Hutchinson, you know, is, yep. is making waves. Little old Hutchinson is really nice. Hey, David, it's time for us to take our second break for a few minutes. Stay with us, everyone. We'll be right back after these important messages. Hello, mates. I hope you're doing well and enjoying the program. Whatever programs you enjoy remain alive and on the air thanks to contributions from generous donors like you. A contribution of any amount makes you a member. Please take a few moments and show your support today at www.patreon.com backslash microstreamradio. Your support allows us to bring you more unique and increasingly valuable programs. We thank you so much. This is Carrie Eilert from the Cedar Falls Historical Society, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. A couple came to Bethlehem, expecting child. They searched the inn to find a place for you were coming soon. There was no room for them to stay, so in a manger filled with hay, God's only Son was born, oh, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. The shepherds left their flocks by night to see this baby wrapped in light. A host of angels led them all to you. It was just as the angel said, you'll find him in a manger bed. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. We're back with David Reed, the chief curator and historical expert from the Reno County Museum in Hutchison, Kansas. David, welcome back. Let's pick up where we left off. I was just about to ask you about the various facilities. So you have the Reno County Museum, you have the Stratic Assault Mine Museum, and then what about the Vaden Stroud Research Library and the Pat Mitchell Research Library? What's going on with those? 
So Pat Mitchell was a historian uh, here in Hutchinson. She was a ardent historical preservationist. She was very vocal about saving historic spaces. She wrote a column. She was an artist. She was an all-around Renaissance woman. She died, unfortunately, in 2001. She was relatively young. Uh, she was only 54, I think. Oh, wow. um, she had amassed in her life a collection that rivals ours, to be honest with you. And wow. she left all of that stuff to the museum. We've been in the process of cataloging all of those items for the last year and a half, two years. And she had stuff that ranges from photographs and documents to bottle caps and oh, wow. bricks. I mean, you, you name it. She, she had it. And so our goal is to make her entire collection available for people to view online. And yeah. we got a grant to do that. And we are going to have the Pat Mitchell Research Library as a new place for people to come where they can access not only Pat's um, material, but also the entire museum's archive. And her work has allowed us to, to tell the Reno County history so much better. She, she's got things that we didn't think existed. She had a newspaper collection that could rival a library. So we're very excited to to unveil that. If you go to our website, you can actually go and look at what has already been digitized. Uh, they, we partnered with Wichita State to digitize our collection and to host it for us. Oh, wow. And so you go on there, and I think there's I think there's currently a little over 400 images that are on there, but there's another many, many thousands on their way. And it's a great place for people to continue to watch as we actively load things onto the website that you can look at. And it's very user-friendly. It's very easy to access. We're just over the moon excited about being able to show this to the, to, to the population of Reno County. And because it's now on our website, anybody who comes across our, our website anywhere in the country or the world can see just how much work this woman did in her life. And it's truly astounding. She's quite a champion. I'm excited yes. for you. That's fantastic. How have you communicated yes, this woman. to the public so that they understand the tsunami of wonderful that's about to hit them? Well, the, there's a lot of different ways. We've got social media, obviously, our website. We've done radio ads. The Hutch Community Foundation was who gave us the grant. They've, they've helped get the word out as well. It, it's something that we hope people understand the magnitude of this project and just how great it, it will be for the community. So we've, we've taken out all the stops on all the different ways that we can get the message out that people should really come and see this. And we've kind of coupled it with an opening with an exhibit so that there's kind of a, a double whammy for people to come to the museum to see this. It's come see the exhibit. And while you're here, please look at what this woman was able to accomplish with her life. And That's it was, fantastic. it's, it's truly exciting. Yeah. Hey, as the chief curator, you, you have a knowledge of the artifacts in the museum's collection, and, and you mentioned that you, there's no way you haven't had a chance to see them all or memorize them all, and I wouldn't expect that, but what, in your opinion, is one of the coolest artifacts donated to the museum? That question is like asking an artist what their favorite color is. <laughs> <laughs> um, normally my answer to that, because I get asked that on a, on a regular basis and yeah. normally it's the last object that came through the door is my favorite. And so when, when I think about a question like that, there's a couple of things that pop into my head right away. One, uh, we recently had someone donate to us a teacher's contract from 1872, which is one of the first teachers to come into Reno County oh, and wow. to see 
to see her duties and responsibilities and her wages and all of that um, is a truly unique artifact. We recently were donated a very substantial collection of photographs from a man named Nation Meyer, whose family has been here since the beginning. His, His grandfather came to the county in 1872. He was a business owner. He was a bank president. And they documented the very early days of Hutchinson uh, with photographs. And now we have those photographs here and it's very exciting. We've got all of those scanned and it's only a matter of time before we can get those uploaded so that people can see the very early days of Hutchinson in Reno County. On a kind of a quirky note, the the one object that almost always sticks out of my head is a, a pickle in a jar is what we call it. And it was uh, a young man in the, uh, in the 1880s put a pickle in a jar for a fair project. Okay. And he decided to leave that pickle in the jar and it's still in the jar 150 years later. <laughs> he sealed it with wax. And so we have a pickle in a jar. <laughs> and it hasn't deteriorated? No. Oddly oh enough, he, he preserved it. He preserved it with something. And wow. we have not, we, we have not, and we'll probably never open that jar, but, uh, no, no, I it's very interesting. That's very cool. <laughs> it's a very unique object. Yes. First time I heard that. Hey, uh, you've got so many exciting things going on that, you know, lots of people probably want to volunteer and probably do volunteer. What kinds of things can volunteers do at the museum or in Stratica? What opportunities do you have? everything. (laughs) We can use help with our front desk, the reception area as visitors come in. um, That's starting to pick up. And before, before COVID hit, we didn't have anybody out there because we didn't, we didn't really need anybody because we weren't getting a lot of visitors, but now it's picking up, having somebody out there to greet the, the, the visitors and to talk to them and to find out, you know, do they need help with research? Are they here for the museum? So front desk, helping with events is always a fantastic way to help support the museum. Um, people like to, to come and help set up. For our, our uh, Halloween event, we had a collaboration where people played as ghosts. We had volunteers who would, you know, they would talk to the kids and interact. We always need help in our archival area, doing inventories, cool. accessioning new items. We've been trying to photograph all of our objects in the archive so that when people access it from the research room, they can see photographs of the objects that we have in our archive. And when you have 30,000 objects, it's going to take a little while unless we have help. Yeah. So that's one way. And the most basic way is, you know, if we have something that needs to be built. I mean, there's just any number of ways that somebody could help. Good. Good. So people of Hutchison, Kansas, please go and volunteer. Um, and I know you probably get tons of volunteers or you wouldn't be able to do everything that you do. Um, so... <laughs> It, you know, it may not be an issue, but just in case, go and volunteer, folks. It's worth it. Now, you're a county society, Reno County. That's correct. And there must be in that, you know, in the county, other societies, genealogical societies, and maybe other historical societies or museums. I didn't scan the county to look for everything, but if there are, how do you interface with those folks? So the biggest one in Reno County is the Cosmosphere. They are Smithsonian-affiliated space museum. Okay. They uh, they do some fantastic work. We've recently tried to, to collaborate with them a little bit more. We're in the process of creating a documentary on one of their founders. 
They've provided us a lot of material to archive in our museum that talks about their history. Museums have a very bad habit of not documenting themselves. Yeah. And so for for us to be able to reach out to the Cosmosphere and archive that information for them is just one more way that they can continue to to operate in, in almost two places because now we can help tell their story as well as them telling their story. And it's a very exciting thing for us to be able to work with the, the Cosmosphere on. That's great. Yeah. What kinds of interesting books has your society published? The the society's written three books over the years. Okay. Um, one of which was called The Hutchinson Spirit, and it's a it's a, a picture book that shows a chronological history of Hutchinson as a as a town. Nice. Then we have another book about the Kerry Salt Mine and its history and operation. And then the last one is on Emerson Carey himself. It's a it's a biography written about Emerson Carey, who was a basically a true rags to riches. Uh, man who came here with his family in the in the late 1870s came into town because he wanted something a little bit more than farm work and became basically a, a salt king if you will in Reno County who uh, he donated a lot of his time and money and resources to making Reno County a better place nice. so we have those three books available and they're all for sale at your gift shop or they're all available to the general public Yep, I, I I know the Carrie Saltmine book and Emerson Carey's biography are both available on Amazon. If uh, somebody doesn't have the ability to access or can't find it on our website, that you can still get them on Amazon as well. Oh, that's fantastic. I want to remind listeners of how to contact the society and what their website is. So the Reno County Museum is Reno R E N O uh, Co C O Museum dot org. And they're in Hutchison, Kansas. And they also have a Facebook page, so you can look them up on Facebook. You can phone the society at 620-662-1184. And the email is katie, K-A-T-I-E, at renocomuseum.org. And I did that for a reason, David, because I want to ask, what kinds of things can people do on your website? Okay, so on our website, you can you can donate to the museum. You can purchase items through our gift shop on the website. Cool. Pat Mitchell's collection is available to view on our website. And you can also link into like past issues of Legacy are all available on our website so that you can read about some of the topics that we have written about in the past. You can purchase um, from our BRIC program online. Um, wow. Like I said, also you can donate on our, on our website if, if uh, that's something you'd like to do too. Fantastic. Now, I, I noticed on your website, which I think is cool because I love Amazon Smile, but I noticed you have something, you know, right on your website for ways you can help. And it shows Amazon Smile there. And for those who mm-hmm. don't know, you know, you shop at Amazon, you list the, the Reno County Museum or the Reno County Historical Society as your um, donation uh, recipient. And as you shop, Amazon gives a portion of everything you spend back to the society. And I think that's Mm -hmm. very cool. Yes. Uh, Okay. So sign up for Amazon smile folks. Nothing else comes out of your pocket. Amazon does that. And it's a good thing beyond using technology. So I know COVID forced us into doing virtual events and working from home and all of that. And it was a steep learning curve for some uh, societies. And then there's society in general. So history, as you know, is always happening, right? And we have things going on, you know, in America today 
And I'm not going to say good or bad because I'm not about that. But we have, you know, immigration occurring and, and new members are coming into the community. We have a lot of things going on in society that are changing things. How does the museum or how does the society stay relevant? We're changing out our main floor gallery to be more inclusive and comprehensive. And that way we can start to tell a more complete story of the history of Reno County. One of the things that the museum has not had in the past was the, the Native American contribution to Reno County history. And so that's something that I'm in the process of trying to, to create and promote in the museum because I think it's something that um, a lot of museums tend to, to overlook or they don't give it enough focus. Do you have reservations close to you or do you have, or which Indian tribe is what I'm trying to say? The tribe that had ancestral uh, claim to this area would have been the Osage tribe okay. and they're currently in Oklahoma. I've, I've reached out to them to talk about particular topics that they, they feel are, are important to them because I feel that only a tribe can tell their story yep. the way they want to tell it. Yep. And so I would never overstep my bounds to tell the story of a Native American tribe without first asking them. And so that's a very important aspect that I think most museums, like I said, tend to forget. Yeah. Um, then we had, we had the African American experience. We've addressed in the past the Hispanic um, experience in Hutchinson. And these are these are things that we want to continue to grow and to include people and 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 encourage people to come tell us their stories and yeah. and tell us more about their experiences because everyone experiences history differently and and the only way to get a complete picture is when you come to us and tell us because we will always be available to to hear history that because that's what we're here for we're here to serve the public we just want people to to know that that is an outlet for them yep that's fantastic I know you probably get this question all the time, but I'm going to ask it because I want listeners to hear it from you. Why is your society important to the community? I, I think personally that Reno County is unique in its history in, in a lot of Midwestern towns. I think the way that this town was founded, the way it has grown over the years, the things that it has contributed to make it a very unique county. And I think that a lot of times People don't know, and I, I want to be here to remind them that Reno County is a very special place. It is. And the amount of material that has been donated to this museum over the, the last 60 years is incredible. And to be able to turn around and show people the things that have been given to us that have shaped their daily lives is a very important thing for me to be able to do. It's something that be, it should be relevant all the time. People think that they're going about their daily lives and that they're not doing anything important. That's not true. Everyone is important. Everyone has a story. Everyone's experiences are different. And, they, and we all react to each other. And when we react to, together, that's what gives you your community. And so I love being able to tell that story of who all of these people were. No matter who you were, if, whether you were Emerson Carey, the, the millionaire salt magnet, or if you were just you know, somebody who worked at the grocery store for 20 years. It doesn't matter. You were here. You mattered. You affected people. Your story counts. Yep, absolutely. Thank you very much for that. So let's switch gears a moment. What kind of services do I get from the society in relation to genealogy? Which ones are free and, and what do I need to pay for? Well, the only time we'd ask you to pay for anything is if we had to make copies and things of that nature just to to pay for the supplies. But otherwise, we're here to help. We're, we're free. We've got lots of resources upstairs. We've got 
funeral records. We've got cemetery records. We have wedding records. We have a, a pretty substantial collection of documents that can help facilitate any kind of research that you're trying to, to find about your family. The, the county itself is a very good resource. If we don't have it, chances are the, the county still does. And so that's always been a very good benefit for us. It, it's rare that anything has been tossed out or lost. That School records, we've got those as well. They're, they're pretty substantial, so they're not always in the best way to, to research, but they're still here. They're still accessible, and uh, we're here to help. Fantastic. I'd like to ask you, what's the best way for you for people to connect with someone in the society if they have questions or need help? I am not preferential. Um, I will take phone calls. I will take emails. When somebody calls, that's fine. And then I tend to resolve it with them um, over email just because it tends to be faster. Um, It's easier for people to get um, documents because I can either scan them or they're already available on on our servers and I can just email it to them. There there really is no preference. Uh, I I just like talking to people about history. So whatever kind of information you want, we're here to help. Thank you so much. All right. I'd like to thank you. David Reed, for spending time with us today. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you so much for making our time together meaningful and very educational. I've had a great time. My pleasure. Uh, And uh, you know what? Your area's history and your society are truly unique and interesting, as you've mentioned, and it's true. Uh, You've enlightened everybody about how you are helping the community and having fun doing it. I'd like to say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to the society and to you, David. I hope you have the best holidays ever. Take care, okay? Thanks. Will do. And with that, we'll end our time with guest David Reed, the chief curator of the Reno County Museum in Hutchison, Kansas. Listeners, for this episode, since it's a Christmas episode, I don't want to spend time doing a wrap-up, but I will make comments and provide a little more Christmas cheer for you all. Please stay tuned for my comments, which is coming up next. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Good tidings we bring to you and your kin. Good tidings for Christmas and a Happy 
And now, we give a Christmas prayer. Father, I pray that you will turn our hearts toward you as Christmas approaches. Please help us to avoid being caught up in the hustle and bustle of the season and miss the chance to celebrate the gifts of charity, compassion, hope, peace, joy and love that you sent on that first Christmas. You gave us the gift of hope, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Thank you, Father, for your immeasurable gift. Lord, I set my heart on you. You are trustworthy, faithful, and the giver of the gift of peace. Please fill us all this Christmas season with your love and grace, and let others recognize you as Savior by your holy presence in our hearts and minds. O merciful God, open the depths of our souls, that we may receive the immortality of our spirits, through the birth of your Son, and by the power of his body and precious blood. For he lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. In the name of our King Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, if you're a listener in the area the Society serves, or if you're a listener researching ancestors in the communities the Society serves, and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting today. The contact information for the Reno County Museum and Historical Society are renocomuseum.org. They're at 100 South Walnut Street, Hutchison, Kansas 67501. They also have a Reno County Museum Facebook page. You can phone them on 620-662-1184. And you can email them at katie, K-A-T-I-E, at renocomuseum.org. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Cymbalbird, Cloverton, Tchaikovsky, Jingle Punks, Ease Jammy Jams, and Scott Holmes. The Christmas Prayer was authored by Stephanie Raquel and Amy Carroll. Microstream Radio is trademarked. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be commercially rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere for commercial purposes without the written permission of Microstream Radio. Thanks to everyone for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. See you all next time on Preservation Oaks. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas!